Well, good morning and welcome to Genesis. My name is Paul Mumon. I'm the lead pastor uh, here. And if you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you to take it and turn to 1 Kings chapter 21 uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to spend a few minutes, just a brief uh, few minutes, looking at a story here. And then I'll let you know in advance that we'll end up moving over to the New Testament into Ephesians chapter 5. So if you want to find uh, both of those places and get a head start, you can. As you see, we're in the second week of a series uh, called Dear True Love. And last week we started out this series uh, by looking at one of the messy, uh, dysfunctional marriages uh, in the Bible. That's the marriage of Jacob and Rachel. Uh, today we're going to look at another messy marriage. It's found in the Old Testament, uh, the story of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Now a little background on these two first. Uh, King Ahab uh, ruled the northern kingdom of Israel starting in 875 BC, and he was a strong military leader, a strong political leader, uh, but weak where it counted most. Uh, and that is that he was weak spiritually and weak at home, and the nation of Israel, which he was leading, uh, suffered as a result of it. In fact, uh, here's what we know uh, Ahab by. One verse really says it all in 1 Kings uh, 21, verse 25. It says, There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. It just kind of shows us that he didn't act alone. All right, He had a partner in crime here, his wife Jezebel, and a big reason uh, why they created such a mess in Israel is because their marriage was a mess too. And I just want to show you one brief example of this. Uh, King Ahab was a bit of a garden freak. Now, I like working in my garden and all, all right, but I do believe that you can cross the line. Uh, there's a fine line in your love for gardening, and Ahab may have been a guy like that. And uh, he had a neighbor, a guy by the name of Naboth, who had this really sweet garden, all right, that Ahab used to eyeball every single day. And so one day Ahab thought to himself, you know what, I want that garden. And uh, so he went to Naboth, and he offered this trade, and Naboth refused because uh, God had forbidden Naboth from doing any business uh, at all whatsoever with Ahab. And so he shut him down. And the text says that Ahab went home. He basically threw himself on his bed. He pouted and then refused to eat. Now, let's just stop there for a second. And I think just some warning signs, especially to you ladies uh, who might be looking for a man, uh, I'd like to caution you to steer clear of the guy who, when he doesn't get his way, throws himself on his bed and pouts and whines, especially uh, if it involves a garden, all right? Just steer clear of a guy like that. Just keep looking. Uh, because here's Ahab, he's one of the most powerful men uh, in the world at the time, the king uh, of this nation, and uh, here's how he reacts, all right? He doesn't get his way, he pouts. Now, it's about to get a little tense because uh, here comes his wife Jezebel, and just kind of pay attention uh, to this conversation, this brief dialogue that we see between the two of them. It starts in verse 5. It says, his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth, the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in this place. But guess what he said? I will not give you my vineyard. Do you like my acting, my little emphasis here? I'm trying my best, all right? I feel a little awkward going for it, but uh, I think you get the point. Well, Jezebel, his wife, said, look at her response. She said, is this how you act as king of Israel? In other words, you big crybaby. Like, you were... I mean, isn't he, I mean, she's, you, you loser, like, you know, get a grip here, you know, quit pouting. She says, get up and eat, cheer up, I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. In other words, I mean, you are, you are such a wimp, you can't do anything for yourself, I'll take care of this. Now, again, I realize that I might be reading into it uh, just a little bit, but if you know the story of these two, and if you just use your creative imagination a little bit, 
I think we see that it's really not much of a stretch. I mean, these two were trouble. All right, they were trouble together. And even with this quick glimpse uh, into their lives, I mean, you can make some assumptions uh, about their character and you can make some assumptions uh, about their marriage and uh, how, how they went about their lives. I mean, notice, just, just even in this instance, notice how passive and weak Ahab really is. I mean, he, he pouts to get what he wants. I mean, anyone know a man like that? Don't raise your hand. Just, just, just kind of listen to that question. Don't, but, I mean, he knows what he's doing. I mean, he knows how to work this situation and manipulate his wife and to get what he wants, and she's going to do his dirty work. I mean, he's not even man enough to take care of himself, and he certainly has no character, and so he's selfish and weak. All right, and then you see Jezebel, and what do you think of? Uh, when you think of the name Jezebel, you think selfish and evil and demanding and and self-centered. I mean, anyone know a woman like that? Again, don't raise your hand, fellas. I, I suggest that you not do that. But I mean, again, just in those words, you know, you king of Israel, what a joke. And what happens next? Well, if you read the story, she orchestrates this evil plan and has Naboth killed and the garden goes to Ahab. And so Ahab and Jezebel, even with this brief uh, story, we see that they, they were evil. They were evil on their own and so much more together. I mean, God wasn't the priority in their lives. He certainly wasn't the priority in their lives. He certainly wasn't the priority of their marriage. And because of it, their lives were a mess. Uh, And the nation of Israel was a mess. And you know what? I think we get a pretty strong indication that their marriage was a mess too. And I I just want to know, I mean, maybe, how how many of you know of a a messy marriage right now? Um, Chances are you do. Uh, And maybe for you, I mean, maybe you grew up in a home with a really messy marriage. And like your mom and dad weren't Ahab and Jezebel sort of evil, all right? Nothing like that. But but maybe you had a very weak and and passive father and a a controlling and, and demanding mother. Or maybe it was the other way around or some other dysfunctional combination. I mean, maybe you find yourself here today and you would say, you know what? I'm the one in a messy marriage or... Uh, you hear today and you know that you and your wife or you and your husband are not on the same page and you don't communicate well and uh, there's no mutual respect and uh, your needs certainly aren't getting met and he or she would probably say their needs aren't getting met either and I mean it may have started well and you would have never imagined sliding to this place where you are today. I mean maybe you're here today and well you'd say your marriage is in survival mode right now uh, or maybe you've just certainly just just figured out a way to coexist or uh, maybe, your, maybe your marriage is in crisis and you're not sure how you're going to make it. Can I just tell you something? Marriage is hard. Isn't it? I mean, if, if you're married, if you've been married, I mean, marriage is hard. You know, my wife, uh, Jenny, and I, we've been married for 16 years now. And uh, I got a picture here of our wedding day and just a couple of cheese balls there uh, getting ready to leave the reception uh, in Auburn, Indiana. We got married back in 1998. Uh, uh, we were engaged under the arch in St. Louis, and that was a pretty cool story uh, for us. And uh, we got married again on this day, and you know what? We had no idea what we were getting into. I mean, I was 23. She was 22. We really didn't have a clue uh, what we were getting to, into in our marriage. And uh, we had a great honeymoon 
awesome honeymoon, went off to Lake Tahoe together for a week, and then we came home and life happened, right? I mean, that, that's when it really gets started. I mean, that's when you really see what marriage is about and, well, how she hangs up her clothes in the closet and you start looking at each other wondering who's going to cook and, well, what do you mean who's cleaning the house or whatever? And for us, I mean, I was uh, in a job that required some traveling. Jenny was working third shift uh, at a hospital as a nurse. And so, I mean, if you've ever worked the third shift or if you've ever been married to someone who works the third shift, well, you just know all of those challenges of being on different sleep schedules. And then add to that, we had some things going on in our extended family at the time and how those affect you and affect your marriage. And then you bring your past into that and your needs and wants and two imperfect people and coming together. And the reality is that marriage is hard. It's very hard. And uh, we've been married for 16 years now. And I love my wife. I love her more. Uh, than I did the day we were married. We were out on a date the other day, and we just got to talking about how great and wonderful of a marriage we have and just our love for each other and our commitment to one another. You know, here's the thing, and, and popular, or contrary to popular opinion, we're not just two of the few that happen to luck out in finding each other, you know, in this universe as some get lucky and others don't. It didn't just happen for us. We've had to work hard at marriage and patience and learning together and finding our way uh, through life and, and in marriage together. Marriage is hard, and if you've been married, you know that. And uh, if you're married right now, uh, if you hope to get married someday, you need to know that marriage is hard. And some of you are here today, and you know that it's not going the way that you hoped, or it's not as good as it used to be, or you thought it would be. And because of it, some of you are here, and maybe you'd say, you know what, I'm frustrated right now, confused, or even angry. Can I tell you something else? It can get better. It can get better. He, God, he, he loves us. And uh, I just want you to know today that if you don't hear anything else, that you can make it. Uh, you can get through it. And with his help and with his presence and his strength, at the very center of your marriage, you can find your way through and uh, really experience the type of marriage that he wants you to have. You know, God created marriage, and because he created it, he's got a vision for it. Uh, he has a plan for marriage and how it works best. And if you're like me, and if you believe that marriage is from him, well, wouldn't you want to know what he has to say about it and how he designed for it to be? Well, there are multiple places in the Bible where God describes marriage at its best, and one of those places is in the book of Ephesians, uh, where the apostle Paul is writing, inspired by God. And with these words in Ephesians, he sheds some light on God's vision for marriage. And so let's pick it up in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 21. Here's what Paul writes. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's talking to husbands. He's talking to wives. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on to say, wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Verse 24, he says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. And what did he do for the church? He gave himself up for her. He says he died for the church. Now, as we read this in Ephesians, we need to remember Paul's overarching theme for this letter. And we just finished studying that as a church. Uh, if you were here with us at all through our Ephesians series, Paul reminds us that if you're a Christian, uh, if you've trusted Jesus Christ with your life, that, that you are in him, that you are in Jesus Christ, that your identity isn't married. 
Your identity isn't divorced. Your identity isn't single, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, your identity is in Jesus. All right, we are in him. We are a new creation. And that means that we find our satisfaction and we find our strength in him. Well, verse 21 here is the last clause in a really long sentence that begins with Paul saying that as Christians, we need to be filled with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. All right, and so he's talking to Christians when he gets to verse 21, and he's describing how we should live. And with verse 21, he moves into marriage, specifically describing God's vision for marriage, and that means it's my marriage, and if you're in Christ, it's your marriage, and if you're in Christ and you hope to be married one day, it's for your marriage too. Paul says, hey, this is what works. This is what it's supposed to look like. This is God's, his vision. This is the very essence of marriage. Now, I'll just say this. Most people immediately focus on the word submit, all right, when we get to these passages, and it sets off a whole range of emotions. But Paul doesn't want us to start there, all right? I mean, to start there is to miss the whole point of everything that he's been explaining uh, up to this part uh, here in Ephesians. Uh, It's each person surrendered to the Lord. It's each person humbly uh, living for him in everything. And now Paul's going to use that to move into this place of marriage. And he shows us how this is supposed to play out. And so let's just call it the essence of marriage. Let's call it God's vision for marriage. And it's in your notes if you want to follow along with us. What's the essence of marriage? The first thing is this. It's husband and wife who are satisfied in Christ. They are satisfied in Christ. Now, what does that mean? It just simply means that before anything else, you are satisfied in Jesus first that you are committed to him, that your fulfillment uh, is found in your relationship with him, and that means that your wounds are healed in Jesus. All right, it means that you find love and acceptance before anything else in your relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, we talked about this last week, about the importance of making your relationship with Jesus Christ the most important relationship in your life. Jesus said, hey, I know you got a lot of needs. All right, I know that for every single one of us, you bring in different baggage and different things that you want and these different desires in your marriage. And what did he say? Jesus is seek God first before anything else. Seek God first in your life and he'll give you what you need and what you're looking for. So he's talking to each of us. He's talking to you whether you're married. He's talking to you whether you're divorced or single, that we seek God first in all things. And so here in Ephesians 5, Paul paints this picture of a husband and wife who know their identity in Jesus and are filled with the Spirit and are finding their satisfaction before anything else in Jesus Christ first. And so it's from that place that he begins in verse 21 saying, now submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And again, we'll get to that word submit in just a moment. But before we do, I want you to focus on the last half of what Paul is saying in verse 21. What's he say? He says, out of reverence for Christ. Now, it's a clue. It's a reminder for you and me of where our strength comes from. Uh, It's a reminder of where your motivation to love your husband comes from, uh, to love your wife comes from. Paul says, hey, do these things out of reverence for Christ. It can also be translated out of fear of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean to be afraid of the Lord as you might be afraid of spiders or snakes or clowns or elf on the shelf or anything like that. But fear in the Bible means to be so focused on something that you are absolutely overwhelmed by it, that it influences everything for you. It's kind of like 
It's kind of like the snow in Buffalo, New York this past week. Did you guys see this? Have you followed this on the news at all? Seven feet of snow in some places in a matter of just a few days. More snow uh, than they get on average in just a few days of time. And winter hasn't even started yet. I mean, it's going to like be there until July. I mean, the snow is going to be melting there until July. In fact, um, our next door neighbors are from upstate New York. And I saw them out in the yard yesterday. And I'm like, hey, how's your family doing? And she said, oh, they're okay. They, they only got three feet of snow where they live. All right. Three feet of snow. Like, can you imagine we? Can you imagine us getting three feet of snow? I mean, we get six inches, and things just shut down. And you go to the grocery store, and there's no milk, there's no bread. All right, there's no beer. I mean, that's what one grocery store manager said. Anytime we get a lot of snow, those three things are the first things uh, that are gone. I mean, you can just imagine, you know, what that snow, what that level of snow would do for us. Well, to fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed absolutely consumed by his love for you. And here's what God knows. He knows that when you take two imperfect people and you put them in together in marriage, that marriage is going to be hard. All right, it's going to take work. And so that means that the ability to love and the ability to persevere has to come from somewhere else. And so Paul says, hey, don't ever lose the wonder of what Jesus has done for you. Like you, you have to be consumed by that, that he died for you, that he, he took your sin and my sin and he dealt with it. And, and that means that if you've trusted Jesus Christ with your life, you're no longer your sin. Uh, you're no longer your past. You're, you're not your reputation anymore. You're not the wounds inflicted on you by someone else. I mean, you were a child of God and you belong to him. And so he says that truth needs to be the motivation in how we live and in our marriage uh, go back to Ephesians 5, verse 1, uh, something that he says at the very beginning of this chapter. He says, hey, here's how you're supposed to live in anything and everything. He says, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love. Be overwhelmed by his love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This just means for me that as a husband, I am satisfied in Jesus Christ first. That's where I look. That's the starting point for my life and for my marriage. That's where my strength comes from. And you know, the same is true for you. The same is true for you no matter where you are in your life right now, no matter whether you're single or you're married or you're dating or in a relationship with, with, with someone else, that, that, that we are to be overwhelmed by him and what he's done for us and, and what he thinks of us. See, here's the thing. As a husband... As a wife, you can bring satisfaction to your spouse, but our satisfaction must first, before anything else, be found in Jesus. And when we rely on him first, then anything else we receive is just bonus. I mean, it really is just bonus because the essence of marriage is a husband and wife who find their satisfaction in their relationship with the Lord first. And the second thing we see is a husband and wife who are submitting to one another. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, in the original Greek language, this word submit was a military term, a common military term that was used to describe an officer or a soldier, excuse me, submitting to an officer. Now, why is that important? Well, if you've served in the military or if you're currently serving in the military, you know that when you join the military, you lose some control, right? You lose some independence. You lose control over your schedule and when you eat and what you're going to eat. I mean, to become a part of something greater, you have to surrender at least a portion of your independence. And, and I think the trouble that we have with these words is that we often fail to understand really the heart of these submit passages and what they mean because, you know, there's a segment and, and probably a popular segment of our culture today that wants nothing to do with words like these, all right, especially in marriage. I mean, we view submission as weak. 
Uh, we view submission as old-fashioned, but that's really an incorrect understanding of the word. Submit doesn't mean to be totally passive. All right? Jesus Christ. I mean, think about him. I mean, the one at whose name every knee will bow on heaven and on er- in heaven and on earth. What did he do? He submitted to the will of his Father. He wasn't weak. And so one of the ways as followers of Jesus that we honor him is we, we live our lives and we live our lives following as an example, you know. And so there's that segment of culture. But unfortunately, there's another segment of culture, including Christians, that have misinterpreted these words and used these words as validation for, to, to mistreat uh, their wife or to manipulate their husband. See, here's what submission is. Submission means seeing her needs before your needs. Uh, submission means seeing his needs before your own. Submission doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. I'm putting his needs before mine. I'm putting her needs before mine. Take note that Paul commanded husbands and wives to submit to each other. And later on in scripture, he still emphasized the equality of all believers in Christ, as we see in Galatians 3.28. And so when he says submit, He's emphasizing that this is something that we do voluntarily. We choose to submit. And and if you read these words in the context of the whole chapter here in Ephesians, you'll understand that submission really is evidence of us coming under the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit doing that work in us. And so God's vision for marriage is two becoming one. It's husband and wife becoming one together, satisfied in Christ first, and by his strength, we submit to each other. Now, he's going to break it down individually. In verse 22, he says, wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, let me tell you what this doesn't mean, all right? This doesn't mean that she cooks, all right? Uh, it doesn't mean that she cleans the house. It, it, it doesn't mean that she gets trampled on like a doormat or that her opinion doesn't matter. Because can I just tell you that wouldn't work in my house? All right, that wouldn't fly uh, in the Moomaw house. Uh, we, we're one, all right, and we're not perfect in this. And we go round and round once in a while about, you know, who's going to do what and how we figure out a way of doing this together. But again, submission is seeing her needs first. Submission is seeing his needs first. It's not thinking less of yourself, all right? It's thinking of yourself less. And so in our house, you know, after 16 years, again, we're just still finding our way of what it means to be one. That God has taken two people and he puts us together with Jesus Christ at the very center of it all. And what we bring to the marriage together, I mean, my wife is smarter than I am. She's got a higher ACT score to prove it of how smart she is, you know? Uh, in our house, my wife handles all of the money. She gives me an allowance every two weeks that I get to take, you know, to find my way through two weeks, all right? But we serve each other. Now, does my wife do a majority of the cooking in our house? Yes, she does, because she's a lot better at it than I am, all right? But you know what? She was gone this past week for a whole week visiting a close friend and getting some extra time with her. I was with the kids, and it was great to serve her in that way, to give her that opportunity uh, to be with our children and to have that time together. We're finding our way together as one. How does God want to use me? How does God want to use her in our marriage? Communicating this attitude of submission. You know, in marriage, both husband and wife are called to submit. And so Paul speaks now to wives and he says, hey, the essence of marriage is when a woman voluntarily 
submits to her husband. And then he goes on to say, as to the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that the husband is the Lord over the wife, but instead what Paul is getting at is that our understanding of submission must come from what exists between Jesus and the church. Because what does Jesus have? What sort of relationship does Jesus have with the church? Well, Jesus loves the church. And and as a church, for Genesis Church, we submit to him. And so our view of submission can't be defined uh, by our culture or from a feminist or from a chauvinist point of view, but submission is best defined when we look to Jesus and we look at his example and we start asking, okay, what does this mean for me and in our marriage? God's vision is husband and wife submitting together. The wife submits to her husband, you know, and and she does that. It's another way of demonstrating her faith and her commitment to Christ. She does that voluntarily out of her love for Jesus and then for her husband. Paul goes on to say in verse 23, He says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, again, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that the husband is in charge. Uh, It doesn't mean that he's smarter or that he makes more money or that he gets sex whenever he wants it. All right, it doesn't say that. Well, let me tell you what it does mean. It means that God's vision for marriage is for the husband to be the spiritual leader of the family. Now, let me break that down for a second. You know, as Paul used the word head here, uh, it normally means leader or ruler or authority, but this isn't the case here. What Paul really wants us to see is that the marriage that God has in mind is one where a husband models the way with his faith and his trust in the Lord. And, And this doesn't any way minimize the importance of the wife's example and of her commitment to the Lord. But do you want to know what I think it means personally? I think it means that in the very end, there is a level of accountability that the Lord has placed upon the husband that he's going to hold men to. And so maybe one of the questions for you and me, if you're a husband, if you're a man and hope to be a husband one day, is to ask yourself, are you modeling a relationship for the Lord to the Lord for your wife and for your kids? Are you modeling your relationship to Jesus uh, for others around you? Are you praying for your family and praying wholeheartedly for your family? Do your kids see you reading the Bible? Do you talk about your relationship with the Lord in front of them? Uh, Paul's describing a husband that's enthusiastic about doing these things, about serving his wife and sacrificing for his wife. It's why Paul compares the husband's part to that of Christ. I mean, what did Jesus do? He gave his life. And Paul says, hey, that's the comparison that you would be willing to give your life. Paul says, hey, submission for a husband in marriage means death if necessary, that you would give your life, that as a husband loves the Lord and loves his wife, he would love her so much that he would die for her if that's what it's going to come to. And then he finishes off in verse 24 and 25, and there are some other verses that we won't get to today, but he says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And before we go thinking that he's not calling the same of the husbands, look what he says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and died for her. You know, I once heard uh, someone describe submission, mutual submission as a couple that's walking side by side, equal together, hand in hand in marriage, and then they come to a narrow doorway. Somebody has to go first. Every once in a while, someone has to go first, and someone must choose to go second. That's mutual submission in marriage. I read someone who said this, submission is rarely a problem in homes where both partners have a strong relationship with Christ and where each is concerned for the happiness of the other. It's two becoming one. 
We're a new creation in Jesus Christ, a new creation in marriage. God at the very center, Christ at the center, you know, submitting to my wife, submitting to your husband. You know, they're, uh, one, of, one of the greatest examples uh, outside of the Bible that I, I see of this uh, as I think about some people that have influenced me and even influenced uh, Jenny and I um, is this couple here. Uh, Cecil and Geneva Baldwin, and uh, we had the chance to get to know them when we moved to Michigan back in 2000. Um, I was serving at the time at a church in St. Joseph, Michigan there, and uh, Cecil and Geneva were moving into a retirement community. Their home was for sale. We bought their house, and uh, well, they happened to be a part of the church where we were serving too. They were married for 73 years, 73 years. Isn't that crazy? 73 years together, and just great people. Uh, Cecil was a retired pastor. Uh, They moved into this retirement community together, and together they served as chaplains uh, to all of the residents uh, in their community, and they loved Jesus, uh, and they loved the church where I was serving at the time. They uh, they could be found every Sunday morning. Uh, We had a prayer chapel in the chapel, praying for people, praying for the services. If I was preaching, because I'm usually a nervous wreck, I went to the chapel because I wanted Cecil and Geneva praying for me, all right? You got some people like that in your life? If you got a problem, you want them praying for you? Cecil and Geneva were those two uh, for me. And so I always made it that point, and I, I knew they would pray. But um, do you know what people remember about them? They, they remember their faith, absolutely no doubt. But there was just something so precious about their marriage. I mean, they were two who had become one. And they loved each other, and they respected one another, and they served together. Uh, they were always hand-in-hand, hand, always encouraging. I mean, this was submission. It was two becoming one. And uh, last year, um, on October 5th, 2013, Geneva passed away. And we got that news. We were just so, so sad. I mean, it, it was a, a joyful sad. Uh, she was 94 of, you know, knowing that she had gone to be with the Lord, but just that sadness of knowing that Cecil was alone because you never saw them apart. And um, the funeral was scheduled to take place 10 days uh, after her death. And they did that because they had a number of people traveling from all over the country coming to this funeral. And wouldn't you know it, five days before her funeral, At the age of 96, Cecil passed away so that on October 20th, Sunday, October the 20th, 2013, hundreds of people gathered not only to say goodbye to Geneva, but also to Cecil. They shared one funeral, and it was so fitting. And uh, just a reminder to me that God writes the best love stories. I mean, he really does. And I mean, his vision for marriage as a husband and wife who are both satisfied in Christ, submitting to one another, and finally, the last thing is a husband and wife who are serving each other, who just make that daily commitment to serve one another. I mean, that's really the heart of it all. I mean, that's really the heart of submission. I mean, it, and it's a byproduct of our relationship with the Lord. God's vision for marriage is a husband serving his wife and a wife serving her husband. And I, I can't promise you that Cecil and Geneva never had a bad day. I hope they did. I really hope they had a bad day and that it wasn't perfect every day uh, of the week. I I, I won't try and tell you that Jenny and I haven't gone through some tough times uh, because we have. And so I'm not going to promise you that you and your spouse uh, won't ever endure some difficult circumstances of, of your own, circumstances that might rock your marriage to the very core. But I will say this, the essence of marriage, I mean, what makes marriage really tick and what gets God's attention is a marriage where husbands, you make it a priority to serve your wife every single day. And wives, you make it a priority to serve your husband every single day too. It's not thinking 
less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I mean, serving means you just start seeing your spouse and their needs as more important than your own. And so that means that instead of frustration, uh, you choose to serve your spouse uh, by being patient. Uh, Instead of being offended by him or by her and what they said all the time, you choose compassion. Uh, It means instead of holding a grudge, you choose to forgive. It means instead of anger, you serve them by showing mercy. Instead of going all Jezebel on them and cutting them down, you find ways to encourage. And instead of resenting your husband or resenting your wife and their needs for affection or intimacy or quality time, you thank God for how he made them and you start realizing that you get to play a part in satisfying those needs for your spouse too. Serving your spouse doesn't mean I resent them, but I get to help in what they need as a servant, you know? And I thank God for who they are and how he made them and what he's doing in them and what he can do in our marriage too. You know, finally, last thing, Jesus is our best influence. He's our best example of this. Look at this uh, final passage in Philippians chapter two, uh, starting in verse five. Here's what Jesus does for us. Paul writes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here's what he did. It says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And here's what God did for him. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so when you take words like these and you look at his example and you start asking the question, okay, what do I do now when it's hard? You look to Jesus And we can't help but see, you know what? He had it hard too. Or when life throws your marriage a curveball and you don't know what to do next, the best thing that we can do is look to Jesus and his example. When you're at a place where you're not sure you can love him anymore or she's not deserving of another chance, we look to Jesus and we ask, what would he do? And what has he done for me? And when you don't think you can take it anymore, or you don't have anything left, or she's not listening, or he's not responding, we keep looking to Jesus, and we're influenced by him. And when you don't have the strength to keep going, or again, if he or she isn't listening, and you know you could give up, but you don't want to, you look to Jesus, because strength comes from him, and power comes from him. And we look to the cross, and we look to the strength that is available to us from heaven. And you pray, Lord, help Help me. Show me the way. Let's do that together right now. Will you bow your heads with me? And just want to give you a moment to pray and maybe pray like that. If you find yourself in a tough place right now, in life, in marriage, and these could be very complicated circumstances, maybe things that I even even touched on today the best thing that you can do today is pray, Lord, help. You don't even have to explain because he already knows. Pray help. And trust in the one who hears us and responds and is able to help us and he loves to help us. And maybe he's just been, been, has, maybe he's just been waiting to be invited into it all. Would you invite him in today? 
Invite him into your life and your circumstances and into your marriage. Pray, Lord, help. And for those of you that are here right now and maybe both husband and wife, but if you're honest with yourself, you know it's not the way that it could be. And maybe you've been living on your own selfish path right now or you're hurt or resentful and, well, you know what? Maybe you have some good reasons to be hurt and resentful even today. Would you be willing? Would you be willing to humble yourself and still pray, Lord, help? Help me. Help me to find my satisfaction in you. Show me what submission looks like in my marriage. Help me to serve my husband, to serve my wife as you would, Lord. Pray, Lord, help. And for some of you here today, uh, maybe you find yourself in a very desperate place and you're desperate for a number of reasons. And one of those reasons that you're desperate is that you know you don't have a relationship with God and you can't seem to escape your past or your present circumstances and there's no help. I want you to know today that there is help. And you can cry out to God. You can pray help today. You can pray, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me. Send your presence to live in me. And you know what? He'll respond and he'll respond immediately and send the spirit to live in you and save you and forgive you and you'll never be the same. You can pray that prayer. Just pray, Lord Jesus, help. Come into my life. Forgive me. Be my strength today. God, we thank you for these prayers that are being offered up to you, Lord for every life. Uh, We pray for the marriages that are represented here today and even those that, well, maybe she's here and he's not or the other way around. God, we pray for strength in our marriages. We pray for healing in our marriages, Lord, that we would have the privilege of seeing your great work in our church and in our lives and in our homes for your name and for your glory. We put our faith in you and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.